Our text for today comes from Luke 1, verses 67 through 79. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. This up just a little bit. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, welcome to Grace Community. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, if you're not aware of that. Um, and in this, uh, in this Advent series, we're uh, doing a sermon series we're calling Looking for the Light. In this series, in this Christmas series, we're examining a number of different stories from the Gospels of people who waited in anticipation of the Messiah, of Jesus. And then they're kind of miraculous, sometimes inexplicable encounters that they had with the risen Lord in the person of Jesus. And we're looking at these in order that we could be a people this Christmas season who would not just kind of go through the motions of what it means to be uh, a modern American Christmas observer, which tends with all the parties and the presents and the excess calories and all of those things, but rather that we would see this season as an opportunity to kind of deepen the well of our hearts, in a sense, that we might see God better, that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus a little bit more. But the truth of the matter is that that takes intentionality. That doesn't just happen. As we kind of go with the flow of our culture, it can be very easy to be just swept away with all of it. It can be very easy. And what we actually need, we talked about it last week a little bit, is some counter-programming in our life. Something that slows us down just enough that we aren't just like so wrapped up in whatever Christmas letter we received from Aunt Judy that tells us about her trip to Boca, I don't know, uh, that, that slows us down just enough that we can see the, see the significance of what God may want to do in our life through this season of time. And if we engage in that counter-programming, something that we think is very helpful here at Grace Community is the devotional that we've had prepared for you. If you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you'll see that those are going through every day, so you don't even need to look at paper in order to do that. But we do do see this as an opportunity to just kind of slow down a little bit, just enough to pay attention. And sometimes that's all that is really required of us, just the ability to stop, to slow down, and to pay attention to maybe what God wants to do in and through our lives, the work that this, the deep work that he wants to do in our hearts this Christmas season. I, for one, believe that God does not waste time, that he does not waste time, he does not waste seasons, he does not waste pivotal moments in our lives, but rather he longs for us to lean into those seasons of time in such a way as that our hearts could be transformed. Amen? Amen. And so today we are going to look 
a story out of the book of Luke, the beginning of the book of Luke, that I think is a little bit overlooked, actually. We are going to be looking specifically at, uh, Ashley read a passage of scripture from the end of chapter 1 of the gospel of Luke, which is Zachariah's song, but really we're going to be looking at the, the, this character of Zechariah in the Gospel of Luke as he int- attempts to introduce us to uh, the Messiah, to Jesus. Now, uh, some of you might be familiar with Zechariah. Some of you might not be familiar with Zechariah. One of the primary reasons that you might not be familiar with Zechariah is that Zechariah is not a common character in our Christmas stories. <clears throat> He's not in a nativity Nobody has a blow up Zachariah in the in the in their front yard. This is not this he's not a Christmas character per se. But yet he is an integral part of the story that Luke begins to tell at, in the very first section of his gospel. Zachariah plays this pivotal role in the story that Luke wants to tell about the coming of Messiah. He he is a person who really communicates or tells the truth about what is going to happen with this man Jesus. And so we need to look closely at what Luke is trying to communicate to us through the life of Zechariah the priest. Now, Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you're probably familiar with this name, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the great prophet uh, who is roaming around the area of Judea before uh, before Jesus really comes on the scene, and he is intentionally preparing the way for Jesus. He's going around Judea. He's baptizing people in a baptism of repentance so that their eyes would, in a sense, be open to the reality of the coming of Jesus in the world. But Luke doesn't start with John. Luke doesn't start by te- just simply telling us the story of John. Luke starts off by telling us the story of John's dad, an elderly priest named Zechariah. John could have just jumped over Zechariah's story. He could have gone to all the familiar stuff, to the manger, and to Mary, and to the wise men, and all of it. But he starts here. And so I think it's important for us to start here as well, to understand what uh, Luke was attempting to communicate to us through the life of this uh, Zechariah, this elderly priest. Uh, Luke chapter 1 is not a passage of Scripture that we read very often on Christmas. The most common passage of Scripture that we read during Christmas is Luke chapter 2. It's the one that gets read on Christmas Eve. It's the one that Linus, I think it's Linus, right, reads to all of the peanuts and Charlie Brown Christmas. It's, It's the memorable one. But Luke chapter 1 is odd, to be honest with you. It's just a little strange. Like I said, Luke could have just jumped into the whole story of it, but yet he starts here. And the reason I think he starts in this way is that Luke needs to set the scene for what is about to come. If he just drops Jesus on us, in a sense, we don't know what's happening. Luke is trying to tie the pieces of, the, of a story together in such a way so that we understand when we see the birth of Jesus what is actually happening. And he uses the character of Zechariah to help us understand or to help us get our minds around what it is, who it is that Jesus is and what it is he's coming to do. Luke needs to set the scene for us. He needs to tell us the story. He needs his audience to know that what God is getting ready to do through the birth of Jesus is not an isolated event. It's not just out on an island out here. It's not this completely new thing that God is doing in the world. There is actually a history here that has led up to the birth of Jesus. You know, one of the things we're told is that people who don't know their histories don't live very well. 
If you don't know your history, if you don't know the history of your family, if you don't know the history uh, of your lineage or of your people, there's a, there's a dislocating effect to that. It makes people feel a little, a little odd, like they don't have a place, like they don't belong. This is probably part of the reason why there are so many genealogy websites. I'm sure all of you, if you're in this place, whether you're a grandpa or you have a grandpa, your grandpa is doing the genealogy, right? And he's telling you who that your third cousin removed was related to Abraham Lincoln or something like that, right? I think that's the I think that's the trick with the genealogy websites. Everybody's connected to Abraham Lincoln in some way, shape, or form. But we also see this come about with with children who are adopted, right? So very often, these people who have kind of been dislocated, they've been cut off from their histories, they go back and they try to figure out, what's my history? Where do I belong? What's my identity? And they do this because understanding your history, understanding your story tells you something significant about who you are. This is why I would encourage you to go back and ask your grandparents, what's our story? Because it gives you this sense of grounding. It, gets, it gives you this sense of place. It gives you this sense of belonging. And when people are cut off from their history, when they're cut off from their story, there is this lack of identity that occurs. There is this dislocation this that occurs. And it's just not very healthy for our, our mental states. And sometimes when we read the New Testament as Christians, we can be guilty of reading the New Testament this way in a way where we cut off the history of the New Testament and we just kind of take the stories or the experiences that we read in the New Testament and we don't see them within the whole arc of the narrative of Scripture, in a sense. We don't understand the history that supports, undergirds, and got us to that point. The stories that we hear about in the New Testament are not isolated events. They're not things that just happened uh, in a vacuum one time. Cut off from history, when we cut off the stories of the New Testament from history, what we actually end up doing is misreading them. Actually, we read them in quite poor ways because they were meant to be a continuation of a narrative, a story that God began back in the Old Testament at the beginning of the Scriptures. And I think Luke begins this first part of his gospel with the story of Zechariah because Zechariah forms a kind of bridge for us. Zechariah, we're told at the beginning of this chapter, we didn't read this, but if you have your Bibles open, you can turn to chapter 1 and you can see this. We're told that Zechariah is an elderly priest, an elderly Jewish priest. And we are told that he is very righteous. The language that the scriptures use is that he is blameless. Now, this is just a Hebrew way of saying that he was a faithful follower of the law. He wasn't literally a perfect person, just FYI, but that he was a faithful observer of the law, of the Torah. And so he loved God and he was faithfully living out of the story or the history that God began in the Old Testament. He was a faithful priest. We're told that he was probably around the age of 60 uh, when this story occurs. He and his wife were probably around the age of 60. But Zechariah forms in this story a kind of hinge point He's, in some sense, because he's a faithful priest, because he's faithfully living out the story of the Old Testament as a righteous person, he is pointing back to the story of the Old Testament. And he's tying those stories into this new thing that God is about to do through him, his family, through Mary, and ultimately through the Messiah, through Jesus. Yes, God is doing a new thing in this New Testament, and Luke is going to quickly bring us to this new thing that God is doing. But this new thing that God is doing has everything to do with what God did before. 
It is not separated. God does not scrap stuff and start over. This isn't how he works. God is like an artist working with the old, even if the old was in some ways broken or misshapen. God works within that context to bring about newness of life. He remains faithful to who he is, what he said, and what he did. He does not scrap the old. He does not simply wipe, uh, clean his hands and walk away. Rather, what God is doing in the New Testament is a continuation of something he began in the past. God is faithful to his word. And we will see in this story, through his interaction with Zechariah, that God will continue to be faithful to his word, even when it seems like he's not going to be. And so Zechariah in Luke's gospel represents a kind of bridge, a figure that has his feet planted firmly in both Um, both stories, both the story of the Old Testament and the story of the New Testament. A A person who is faithfully living still out of the story of the Old Testament, but leaning us towards, pointing us towards, kind of propelling us towards this new thing that God is doing, this crescendo in the story of God's action in history in the person of Jesus. But that is not the only thing Zechariah represents in the story. Zechariah is an elderly priest, and, uh, and he is one of the primary players in this crescendo. But we're told in the story that Zechariah also, with, along with his wife, is unable to have children. They were not able to have kids. And in their inability to have kids for all of this time, we see a kind of longing, a kind of desire that, that, that is present in Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And this longing, this childlessness, this waiting that Zechariah and his wife endure as not having children. Now, in the first century, if you didn't have children, were synonymous with bless, the blessing of God. And if you didn't have children, it was commonly believed that you were in some way cursed, that you had done something, you had sinned in some way that would have caused you to not have children. Yet Luke is quick to tell us that Zechariah and his wife are blameless, they're righteous, they don't, their, their lack of children has nothing to do with their righteousness or their holiness or their sin. It, it has everything to do with just this posture of waiting, this posture of waiting. And in the same way that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are childless and they're waiting, they're praying for a child, there's, also, there's, there's this sense of anticipation and longing that's represented in them that is also represented in the story of Israel. Now, this might be a little technical, but the story when we pick it up in Luke's, at the beginning of Luke's gospel is almost 400 years after the end of the story in the Old Testament. Almost 400 years. Uh, this, this time period, what, what historians call this intertestamental period, was a time of great silence. For this 400 years, God did not speak. The prophets were not active. There was a great silence. And, when we, and so when we pick up the story of Zechariah, Zechariah is in this posture of waiting for a child. He is in this posture of longing, anticipation, and hope. And Israel itself is in this posture of longing, anticipation, and hope. Longing, desiring for God to do something, for God to speak again. 400 years, 400 years. Just do the math, right? We're in 2019. That's 1619. 
All right? That's 150 years before America existed, basically. Generations have come and generations have gone without so much as a single prophet, not one word from God. And over that time, that, like I said, the time that the historians call the intertestamental period, Israel has been conquered and ruled by one global power after another. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, and finally the Romans had, for the most part, there were some pockets of freedom in there, but for the most part, these global powers had held Israel in a perpetual state of occupation for a very long time. It was a time that you could think of as a time of great darkness. So much so that even though the people of Israel were able to worship God, they were able to go to the temple, they were able to, uh, to give offerings, even though, and even though they were back in their land, they had been exiled for a while, but even though they were back in the land that God had promised to us, there were, promised to them, there was still this sense in the people of Israel that they themselves were still in some sense slaves, that they were still in some way exiles. And, that they, and they longed for a kind of liberation. They longed to see the promises of God that God had made in the Old Testament that he had begun with people like Abraham and David. They longed to see those promises come to pass. And by Zechariah's time in the first century, people were beginning to doubt. Was God ever going to act? Did the promises that, and the covenants that God made with Abraham and David still hold true? Have you ever been in a moment like that where you're just kind of waiting? Things feel dark at times. You feel like maybe God has forgotten that he has a plan and a purpose for your life, right? In times of waiting like this, everything can kind of feel suboptimal, right? You can just feel like you're in the kind of holding pattern. And in moments like that, it's very natural to simply go, where is God? Where is he in this process? I don't see him. Things feel dark. In the midst of confusion and doubt and darkness, we ask this question, right? Where is God? Where can he be found? Why is he not helping me out? Why has he not kept his word? Why has he not been faithful? These are natural questions, I think. And in those moments of silence, it can feel like the word is never going to come. Like the presence of God will never return. Like the light is actually never going to pierce the darkness. But if this story tells us anything, it's that though it feels like darkness, though there is a dislocation, that there does seem to be a kind of great silence, God is at work. God is at work in those times. He is at work in our lives, even at those times in which we cannot feel it. But we do need to trust, and we do need to wait. And sometimes waiting is the most difficult thing in all the world. It was in this, the midst of this long silence that the God of history is working and it is in the midst of this long silence, this period of waiting, of, of Zechariah waiting for the liberation of his people, of Zechariah waiting for he and his wife to have a child. It is in the middle of this waiting, in this darkness, in this silence, that the Lord calls out to Zechariah. You know, Zechariah's name, it's a Hebrew name, but his Hebrew name means the Lord has remembered. 
And Elizabeth's name, the, the, her Hebrew name, means God is my oath, or another way of putting it is God keeps his promises. And so the God of history reaches out again into the story of humanity by reaching out to an elderly, childless, faithful couple. And he tells them that at nearly 60 years old, they are going to have a son. And that this son will be the first true prophet that that Israel has seen in centuries. This is what this is what Zechariah is told. Now remember again what time we are in. We are in the long silence. No prophets. The power of God has seemed as though it has been drained out of the people of God. Yet the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that this child that will be born will be filled from the Holy Spirit from before his birth. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says this, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. In short, the long wait is over. The Spirit of God, the power of God, the presence of God rings out into a dark and silent world. And the, and the angel Gabriel goes on to tell Zechariah that this prophet Will, will not just be an ordinary prophet. He will be a prophet like Elijah, one who will prepare the way. And this child will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He will have a specific role to play in the redemptive plan of God as God kind of restarts the engine of his plans in the world again. Have you ever tried to... Re- Some of you might be restarting your snowblowers, Right? There's always a little bit of fear and trepidation when you try to restart your snowblower after a long summer. Did I drain the oil? Did I do that right? I don't know. And yet, and, and when the angel comes to Zechariah, Zechariah, we're told that Zechariah is filled with awe. He can hardly believe that it was about what is about to happen. He doesn't even understand necessarily what the angel is saying. And he questions Gabriel. He says, is this even possible? I don't know how this is going to work, man. <laughs> Which is an interesting <coughs> response to an angel. And Gabriel responds in a real nice way by shutting his mouth for nine months, right? He says, in a sense, I, I think when you read this passage, sometimes you can think that Gabriel is being punitive, like he's punishing uh, Zechariah for asking a question or carrying some unbelief, and there, there might be a little bit of that in there. But I think when he does this, it's almost a way of saying, just keep your mouth shut and watch what God will do. Just keep your mouth shut and watch what God will do. And Zechariah goes again into another period of silence, a long silence, a period of anticipation and preparation. When his wife is pregnant, but he can't talk, which some wives would enjoy. A little bit, right? I don't know what woman wouldn't like to hear their husband talk, but Zechariah is silent until the naming of this son, the naming of this boy, John. And when this boy is named, Zechariah's mouth is opened and he launches into a song of praise. He says his name is John, his voice is open, his, his mouth is unlocked in a sense, and he launches into this hymn, this song of praise, this beautiful thing. You heard it read this morning in our teaching text. 
And for the rest of the morning, what I want to do is kind of center on that song, that hymn of praise that Zechariah sings, in order that we can maybe open up a little bit more to what it is that Zechariah believed was happening at the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of Jesus. Zechariah's song is a song of anticipation and hope. Hope and anticipation for his son. There are some passages about that, but more than anything, Zechariah almost casts his eyes back, past beyond his son to this Messiah, to the one that his son will proclaim, to the one for whom his son is preparing the way. Zechariah looks to the Savior, to the Messiah, to the one who is coming, and he anticipates his coming, and he talks about what it is he is doing. He talks about the ways in which God will finally and definitively act after this long silence, after this long period of waiting, the ways in which God will act to save his people. This is what he launches into. And he begins uh, specifically in verse uh, 71. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to that passage of Scripture. We're going to look specifically at it for a little bit this morning. Just a few observations of what it is that, that... Uh, Zechariah's song is all about, what it is he anticipates. The first thing that Zechariah anticipates in verse 71 is the rescue of Israel from its enemies. This is important for us to understand because from the perspective of Zechariah, one, one of, if not the primary thing that the Messiah was coming to do was to deliver Israel from its enemies, its oppressors. It was to set them free, to set them free in a literal, physical way. The Messiah was going to do what no other Jewish person, probably since David, was able to do. He was going to defeat the enemies. He was going to establish God's kingdom, his rule in the earth. Only he was going to do it in a more complete way than David was even able to do it. You see, this Messiah who was coming, and you see that clearly in verse 71, was going to establish a, a kingdom where there were no more enemies and there was no more fear. And this is what he says to do. From our perspective, when we think about the deliverance that the Messiah brings, we think of it uh, in a purely spiritual sense. We think about it as being delivery from uh, sin and death, rescue from sin and death, and that is most certainly central, central, central to what Jesus is doing. But in Zechariah's uh, in Zechariah's song, there is a this-worldly component to the freedom that Jesus brings. And now, we don't see this actually happen in the story of Israel. God had, did not finally deliver them from their enemies in this way. But we see Jesus saying that there is a this-worldly component to the freedom that he brings. There really is. We are not separated from a this-worldly deliverance when we follow Jesus. And we do that not by, uh, by leaning into his way of life, his way of life. You see, what Jesus came to bring was not just freedom for your soul, but freedom for all of your being, all of it, every last stitch of it. Your soul is very important, and the soul is a way of saying in the scriptures the totality of your being, so we can get those words mixed up. But Jesus came to deliver us body, mind, and spirit. All of it. All of it. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel. I don't expect that we all drive Teslas out of the parking lot today. If we, should, if we want to do that, let's all get together and make that happen, though, because I love Teslas. Anyways. Uh, 
You don't even have to drive, guys. They drive you places. Anyways. But God, there is, there is a this-worldly deliverance to the, to the work of Christ in our lives. And we cannot forget that. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget that through the history of the church, those who followed Jesus brought healing and deliverance, literal physical healing and deliverance, wherever it is that they went. This is why Christians invented hospitals, right? Because there is a this-worldly component to what it means to follow Jesus. This is why people who follow Jesus should be the people who step into progressive levels of mental and emotional health and wholeness. Because Jesus' salvation is not just for another world. It is for this world. It really is. And too often we lose sight of that reality. And, and, we, and we put off maybe the teachings of Jesus in such a way as that we don't allow them to kind of sink deep into our hearts and transform us from the inside out. It is a this-worldly reality that Zechariah proclaims, and it is a this-world reality that the Messiah came to deliver us from. He came to deliver us from patterns of sin and death that keep us bound and broken. And if we, haven't, if we don't avail ourselves of that function of what Jesus came to do, then we haven't availed ourselves of everything that the Messiah came to do. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I think this is incredibly important, and we skip it very easily, that we see from Zechariah's song is that God is showing his hesed, his covenant faithfulness love. You'll see this in verse 72 and 73. It's, uh, he says that the Messiah came to show mercy to our ancestors, which is an interesting phrase, right? Because ancestors are dead, just FYI. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now, this might seem strange to you, but God's love in the Old Testament is exemplified in his ability to remain faithful to his word, to his covenant, to his promise. Hesed is the word we, that is used in the Psalms, for instance, when we read about God's steadfast love. And it's connected to this idea of God's promise, the fact that he put his reputation on the line and said, I am going to be a partner in this relationship. I am going to be in this relationship. I'm going to be faithful to this covenant. The word, this is why uh, observant, many observant Jews, the ones with long beards and hats, uh, are called Hasidic Jews. They want to re remain faithful to the covenant that was made with God. And this is the definition, the, the New Testament changes the definition of what godly love looks like. That word is, that New Testament word is agape. But if, if you were to talk in Old Testament terms of what the love of God looks like, it looks like this hesed. It looks like covenant faithfulness. And this is the kind of love that God, that, that Zachariah says God is going to display towards people. Love that is faithful to a covenant or to a promise. Now imagine with me a married couple, and the husband tells his wife that he loves her. He loves her, but he is not going to remain faithful to the promise he kept. What would we say about that love? That is not love, just FYI, right? God's love is embodied in his willingness, his ability to remain faithful to the promise he made in the Old Testament, to the story of the Old Testament that comes through. And what Zechariah is saying in this passage is that God has not forgot his promise. 
His character has not shifted. He has this hesed, this deep covenantal faithfulness that he carries from this generation to that generation to that generation to that generation, and that that will not change. It has not changed, and it will not change. He will show mercy to our ancestors. He will remember the holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. God has tied himself to this reality, and he is not moving off it because his very character, his reputation is on the line. This is what it means for God to love. He does not abandon his promises. Rather, he remains faithful to them, and in his faithfulness, this is a demonstration of his love to us, to the people of Israel. And when we read this, we can go, oh yeah, he's going to do that thing with Abraham. No, this is central to the character of God. God is this type of God. He is a God who is faithful to his promise. He displays covenantal faithfulness to his people. And again, is this the type of God you serve? Is your God kind of wishy-washy? Is he kind of like I heard an analogy the other day of a guy who was talking about his perception of God. He said that God was like a cop following him with his lights off, right? He's just kind of waiting to get you, right? But is, does your God display hesed? Is he a God of covenant faithfulness? Is he one that is going to keep up his end of the bargain even if you can't? Is this the type of God you serve? Because if, if, you're, if the God that you serve, the God that you have in your imagination, in your mind, is kind of sub, or is kind of below this, it's not the God of the Scriptures. It's not the God of the story of the Bible. It is not the God of history. The God of history is defined by his covenant faithfulness. And though Zechariah is living at a time when there was this long silence, there was this long period of a lack of visible reality of that God working, that God has, been, has promised that he will continue to be faithful to the promises that he has made. So that's number two. The third thing we, lo- we learn is that this Messiah, this one who is coming, will take on cosmic forces that oppress humanity and bring pain and suffering into the world. In verse 77, says this, he gives his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This God, who will remain faithful to his promise, is now coming into the world in the person of Jesus, and he is going to deal finally with cosmic forces of pain, suffering, death, and sin. And he is going to finally, in the crescendo of the story of God, deal with those issues. He will not forget about them. He will not pass them over. He will deal with them. Finally. Completely. This language is funny to us. Cosmic forces that wage war, right? It sounds like an Avengers movie. Like, is that Thanos? Is he going to stop Thanos, right? But this is the, the language of Jesus' work in the Gospel of Luke, and specifically in the Gospel of John, is cast within this kind of cosmic framework. The thing Jesus came to do was not little or simple. It was cosmic. It was big. It envelops all of creation. It is this beautiful, big reality. And Zechariah makes clear to us that what Jesus is doing here is practical. It is this worldly, but it also deals with all of the forces of pain, suffering, death, sin that hold the world captive. This Jesus will come 
and he will give his people the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. In the Hebrew mind, the thing that the great enemy, the thing that held all of humanity in, in, its, in captivity was sin and death. Sin and death. Sin and death. And Jesus came to defeat those realities. And Zechariah makes clear to us in this passage that this is, what, this is what he anticipates this one who is coming will do. And finally, finally in this passage, Zechariah begins to talk about uh, the morning star. The morning star. After he gets done talking about the reason, uh, talking about this Messiah, this one who is coming, delivering the people from sin and death, he goes on to say why he is doing this. And he says it's because of the tender mercy of our God. It is a God who looks at us. Again, another picture of God that we should have in our minds. A God who looks at us with tender mercy, longing to save us. And he says, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. The actual translation, I think the NIV translates this passage wrong. I think the more accurate translation is to say the morning star will come to us from heaven. The morning star. Zechariah lived at a time where there was deep darkness. The shadow of empire loomed over the people of Israel. Zechariah lived at a time in his own personal life when he just thought, my, this is my life, my wife. And I, 60 years old, childless. And yet into that reality breaks something unimaginable. The morning star. A kind of light coming from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. To release those standing under the shadow of death from the pale of death. And to guide all of those people into the way of peace. This is what Zachariah says will happen. You know, the title of this message, the title of this sermon series is Looking for the Light. And there's some, there's some deep-seated reality, I think, in the Christian life. That though every, every gift that God has made available, uh, available to us through the person of Christ is actually available to us, very often, very often, we lose sight of that reality. And we are called to yet, yet again to lift our eyes, as it were, and see the light that is dawning all around us. All around us. I don't know about you, but I can, I can be a fairly negative person from time to time. Is there any, like, maybe glass half empty? You can raise your hand. That's okay. <clears throat> a glass half empty. A glass two-thirds. The two-thirds full is like a third empty to me sometimes. <laughs> My wife's laughing. Uh, and, and yet, and yet, this is the reality that we're called to lean into as followers of Jesus. That the morning star, that the light has dawned, that the darkness of our lives is being cast out by the radiance of Jesus, the Son of God. And that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the darkness. We don't have to be afraid of our waiting. We don't have to be afraid of our current circumstances. We only have to lean into the reality of the one who has come. And know and trust 
and believe. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to see the sunrise in our lives, in our hearts. Andrew, if you'd come play quick. The reality for most of us, the reality for most of us most days, I think, is that we don't see the light dawning all the time, do we? Maybe on our good days, we have this sense that God is with us. Maybe, maybe at, at our, at our uh, when we feel inspired or when we hear that good song, right, we believe it. But Zechariah anticipates a light that would dawn, that would cast out darkness and would never go away. This is what Zechariah anticipates. This is what he points to. And that happens. On Christmas morning, that happens as the, the light of the world is born, as he kind of erupts into the cosmos in a way that is just startling and hard to get our minds around. That happens. And that freedom and that love and that peace and that joy are available to us. To us. The morning star has come to us from heaven. And he has shined his light on those of us living in darkness. And so this morning, I just wonder, do you feel like you're in a place of darkness? And do you need a little light? Do you need a little light? Because in the person of Jesus, that light has been made available to us. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, just in a moment of reflection, I just want to pray for us this morning. That if you're in this place and you feel that, you feel that heaviness, maybe a darkness, and you're like, when is this going to happen? Maybe you're like Zachariah this morning and you're like, when, when is this going to go? I feel the long silence, I feel the waiting, and it's just not what it needs to be. This morning you can know that the light has dawned, that the morning star shines in your life. That the day has come and will come again where all, when, when God shines his light on us and we can be free. And so this morning, if you're in this place and you're just saying, Nick, I, yeah, I'm in one of those places. I, I just feel like there's darkness in my life. I just feel like maybe I'm under a pale. I'm, under, I'm, I'm in a shadow of some kind. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of longing. I'm tired of all of it. I just, I need to see the light. If you would just raise your hand this morning, just in confidence. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for you. Would you pray with me? Father, for those people in this place today who feel that darkness, who feel that pale, who feel as though there is a kind of, there's a cast over their hearts. I pray that the God of light, the morning star, would rise in their hearts and in their experience this morning. That they would cast their cares upon the person of Jesus. That they would look to him as the light, the source of their lives. And that they would go from this place today believing, knowing that he's with them. 
And though they might still be in a little bit of a holding pattern, they might still be in a season of waiting, that's normal, it's part of life, that they would know, even in the midst of that season of waiting, that you are with them, that you are with them. And that, is, and that they would experience you as a God that, that brings light to their lives. As a God who brings light to their lives. Now, Jesus, we thank you for what you have done and will continue to do for us as you light our way this Christmas season, as you show us your love and your goodness and your grace. We pray specifically that as this Christmas season goes, that you would draw us to your heart, that you would draw more people who are far from you to the heart of your son, Jesus, that more people would come to place their faith, their trust in that morning star. We thank you for what you've done, and we believe that you will continue to do it in this place. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Would you stand with me as we get ready to go? All right. Well, it's good. It's good. Thanks for being at church today. I appreciate it. Uh, as you go, uh, we've made a few more of our Advent devotionals available. I think we printed like four or five more out there. So if you haven't had a chance to grab that, you can feel free to grab that. Just because you didn't start it at the beginning of the season of Christmas doesn't mean you can't pick up halfway through, right? There's never a bad time to start a new devotional. So feel free to do that. And we are looking forward to the rest of this season of Advent. We believe that God uh, is up to something, that he really is. And so, uh, again, if you have any friends who uh, aren't regular church attenders, people who don't often come to, uh, don't have a church that they call their own. This is a great season of time to invite a friend to have them sit next to you. I think it's always uh, a pretty easy sell this, during the Christmas season. All right? All right. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.